1: Hey y'all, it's Dina, lead producer here. It's that time of the week where we look back at all the stories from around the city and talk about them. With me today is political contributor Evan Mintz and contributor Shiem Galeon. It's Friday, February 17, 2023. I'm Dina Kispa, and here's what Houston's talking about today. Shiem, Evan, thank you so much for joining me for the Friday News Roundup.
0: Good morning. I'm so happy to be here.
1: All right. To kick us off with the biggest story of the week, Evan, tell us what is going on.
0: So from my perspective, the biggest story this week is a Houston Chronicle article about evictions in Harris County. Mm. But it's not necessarily the top level headline that I think is the most interesting part of this. Mm -hmm. Now, the story is about uh, an eviction court run by Justice of the Peace in Precinct 5. And if you know your Harris County precinct maps, which I presume everybody does, Mm -hmm. you know that there are more than one million people in this precinct. There are eight precincts total in Harris County. And the story goes through about how there are around 400 evictions in a day. It takes about 90 seconds per eviction. And this runs contrary to the standards that are set by the Chief Justice of Texas Supreme Court, Nathan Hecht, who's a Republican. But he wrote an op-ed a little while ago saying it should take around more than 10 minutes to decide whether you kick someone out of their home. Mm -hmm. Now, here's why I think this is the biggest story. Evictions are overseen by justices of the peace who are elected. You have two JPs per precinct. And precincts haven't been seriously redistricted since the 1970s. So you have some districts that have huge populations and huge numbers of evictions and huge numbers of apartment complexes. Two justices of the peace. You have precincts that have much smaller populations and fewer people and fewer evictions. Two justices of the peace. It does not make sense. The data firm January Advisors has gone through the stats and is really calling through redistricting to equalize these populations to make sure the needs are met. But here's the big problem. Here's why it's a big story. Justices of the peace also overlie with constable precincts. So if you change their districts, you're going to have to change the constables. And if you change the constables, you'll probably want to change their budgets, too, because you'll go from overseeing, say, a million people to like 500,000. Some will get more, some will get less. But you can't do that in Harris County because the state of Texas counts it as defunding the police. So to try to solve this whole problem that the Chronicle has laid out is practically impossible because the state of Texas has fiddled with the way that we work. It's a broken system. The state messed up. And here we are suffering from it as hundreds of people get kicked out of their homes and we don't really have a way to solve it. Oh, my gosh.
1: Yeah, honestly, that was a story that it was going to make my my the story that I felt like people should be learning about because to be honest, this story, I started following more closely evictions with the pandemic and how that was handled. And it was it was really emotional seeing these families with kids be thrown out of their homes. And I'm not talking about evictions of like, okay, somebody just like squatting and, you know, they're renting out an Airbnb and never left. These are like people who just are literally struggling and don't know where else to go. And we don't even have a system in place to help anyone. And this, like you said, the system is so broken. So it's like, what? how can you even fix it? Where do you even begin?
0: Oh, yes. And people sometimes just don't know to show up and then get kicked out. People don't, uh, don't know to get representation or can't afford it. And then just mm-hmm. the way people are treated in these courts are awful. The reporter was tweeting about how her phone made a chirpy noise in the middle mm-hmm. of a hearing. And they took away her phone for the rest what? of the day. What? Absolutely. Oh, my God. It's nuts. Wow. Shiam,
1: you work really closely in the local community and in organizing. What have you been hearing on the ground?
2: Well, first of all, Evan, thank you so much for laying it out the way that you did. Um, Mm -hmm. What I'll tell you is that this was actually something when I was looking through the news, uh, I put housing uh, as my big question mark that there's stuff Mm -hmm. that I need to find out because on the one hand, and my organizer friends from other local cities have been saying to me, "Oh, Shiam, um, we're going to profile Houston because it, you know, because of uh, the city's success with combating homelessness." Mm. And I'm like, "Wait a second! I'm kind of confused. Um, I'm seeing and hearing different things locally. Mm-hmm. I need to parse out what's happening and what the dynamics are. I know that, um, for example, there's this group called Space City Anarchist Organization." that's on Instagram that's been, um, uh, holding mutual aid drives to try and support families. And what I, uh, what's on my to-do list to parse out is, um, because Houston is so decentralized trying to figure out like which communities they're in touch with and what parts of the story around housing and homelessness that they're plugged into. Um, I thought Evan when you were sharing your top story that you were going to share the story that I had read which was a success story which was um there's this completely other pro- there's this other program in Harris County uh and the story that was in the news this week was about a tent encampment being disbanded um and so when you said evictions that's what I but then of course that's not an eviction uh, I guess or is it? I don't know. It's uh, we just thinking about the words. But for those who don't know, um, that part of that, you know, to contrast with what Evan is saying, that there's a program um, that the city of Houston has uh, to help people who are houseless move into facilities and help reintegrate them into. Um, not just having housing, but job training and and all of that. It's very, like, intensive, and it seemed like very care-forward uh, social work. Mm-hmm.
0: No, I, th- I think the city actually does a really good job in responding to homelessness, particularly in contrast mm-hmm. to other yeah, cities. true. Uh, mm-hmm. And it feels like often the political pressure isn't to, like, freak out that people can't afford their homes, they have nowhere to live. It's like, oh, I don't want to see these tents. What are with these tents? I don't like it. And the city, like, responds to that political pressure, but with actually effective programs where you just, you don't go in with cops, you don't do big sweeps, you connect people with housing, you work with owners of apartment complexes to get people homes, housing first, but you also set up these unique middle ground places where people go with their stuff to connect to services before they get into that housing. Mm-hmm. And I found that I had never heard of a program that works exactly like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just kind of struck my attention, particularly as so many other cities can't seem to to wrap their arms around this.
2: It's particularly upsetting with what you're sharing, Evan, because there's all these evictions happening of families as the city is also being praised for getting people mm-hmm. into homes. Yeah. It, yeah. it seems like things are not working in tandem or in, in like a unified way. Um And it is really upsetting.
1: And it disproportionately affects, more often than not, people of color. And the reason why I didn't pick this one particularly as my biggest story, even though it is a massive story that needs attention, I'm also looking to the new pipeline project that's in Houston, that Centerpoint Energy plans to install this natural gas pipeline transmission lines four feet underground in the neighborhood of Southwest Crossing, which is a mostly black and brown neighborhood. And they've been fighting this, I read, for two decades. And I'm just like, two decades of fighting this. And still, I don't, I don't believe anything is going to come to fruition for them, unfortunately, because it just gets end up, it's one headline swept under the rug and then it ends up happening. And at the end of the day, only something tragic then gets attention again. So the Environmental Defense Fund did a study and showed communities of color we were always the ones that buried the burden when it came to pipelines or any sort of mechanism that would jeopardize their health. Yet nothing has really changed. And that, for me, that's a huge story, and it's something that we should be talking about. But it's like one headline, and then it just disappears. And it continues to happen.
0: I mean, I'm going to say something to, that's going to probably scare the hell out of you, but you can go and look at maps of where pipelines are, and it crisscrosses the whole region. Like we, Houston is an energy city. We're an oil and gas city. And we are probably sitting on a bunch of pipelines right now. Uh, but, but here's another thing to think about is that Houston first started towards the Gulf, uh, towards uh, Galveston Bay, because that's where the jobs were. That's where the refineries were. That's where the port is. And so all of the infrastructure around oil and gas got put in there. And suddenly people realized they don't want to live mm-hmm. there anymore because it's gross, mm-hmm. because there's pollution because it's loud. And so people with means, mostly white, started moving west and further and further west. And people without means were kind of stuck towards the east side. And that is where all the pipelines
2: are. Mm.
1: Mm. Yeah, that is terrifying. Sheen, what was your biggest story this week?
2: Dina, my biggest story right now for Houston is that the FBI is launching a federal civil rights investigation into Harris County Jail. Mm-hmm. Um and I was actually I saw this I think I saw something about this in the Houston Landing which is a right. new Houston publication that I'm super excited about um but it's also made national news um and a really famous civil rights attorney Ben Crump is representing families in Harris County um and he said something that's stuck in my mind that 32 detainees have died in Harris County jails in a 14 month period Wow. wow, 32 detainees, 14 months, four people have died this year, um, and 28 last year. And the sister of one of the people who was killed, uh, Jacoby Pillow, um, her name is Octavia Wagner, and she said at a press conference, no one should receive a phone call, no one telling them that their loved one is deceased, and not get any answers. Um, there's an FBI office in Houston, and I think that's where... They're going to be leading the investigation. Um, and but they said they announced that they started the investigation, but that they won't be sharing any details.
0: I mean, the thing that really stands out to me about this story is you have Ed Gonzalez, the sheriff who runs the jail, explicitly asking the FBI to come in and investigate. Like whenever do you mm-hmm. see police departments saying, like, please investigate us, please provide some oversight. And I think it shows yeah. just how terrible the conditions are. At the jail, you have Mm -hmm. a sheriff's office that has to oversee it, but they can't control who comes in. They really can't control who goes out, especially after the state has put new limits on the ability to uh, grant people personal recognizance bonds. And so you have this overcrowded facility with no real systemic way of thinking about why are people here or not. For as long as we have cash bail, people are going to get stuck behind bars, not necessarily because they pose any kind of danger, not because we think they're going to flee or not make their court dates, but because they just don't have money.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah,
2: that's true. I'm definitely going to be following that story. Evan, what do you think is a story that
1: should have gotten more attention this week?
0: (sighs) Well, I hate to break it to everyone. I think this is the most overlooked story, but it's that Houston is doomed. Uh, Oh, no. I know. So this week, (laughs) the Financial Times has reported that U.S. consumption of gasoline has declined, has gone down. People are buying less gasoline. It went down 6% from pre-COVID levels, and it's only going to get worse. This is bad news for Houston like houston is a city built on oil and gas what we do here is we make gasoline and other petroleum products it's why we exist it certainly ain't for the weather and people stop buying our stuff then we're in real trouble u.s Mm -hmm. gasoline consumption is past its peak there might still be growing levels globally and thank goodness we got this great port to export all of our products but as the entire world transitions to electric vehicles as people commute less As the fuel economy in existing cars goes up and up with every passing year, it just means that Houston becomes less important in the global economy and the thing we do becomes less necessary.
1: Mm. Yikes. That is alarming. I mean, why is that? Are just people just moving more towards electric cars? Like, is Tesla really making that big of a dent?
0: Well, the Financial Times said that one of the biggest drivers was just existing gasoline cars getting more and more fuel efficient that government regulations have required fleets to have their efficiency go up. And so if you're uh, manufacturing and selling cars, you have to sure show, let me start over there. If you're Mm. manufacturing and selling cars, you have to show that your fuel efficiency is going up is reaching certain levels. And that is really what's driving a lot of the decline in consumption along with people commuting less, you know, they're working from home. And also yes, electric vehicles.
1: And I have to say, I'm one of the people that's like thinking of an electric car as my next purchase, (laughs) trying to move away from gas because it's like unpredictable. The gas prices can just skyrocket. And if you have an SUV, you're kind of like, ooh, I got to really map out exactly how much I'm driving today.
0: Oh, I've I've definitely got my eyes on an electric hybrid minivan. Like, I can't wait.
2: Oh, don't those. See, that's what I'm saying. That's exactly what I've got Um, my eye on. (laughs) may May I smugly share with you both that I have a Toyota
0: RAV4 hybrid? Oh, Let's see, there we go.
2: <laughs> I'm not smug. I'm There's not our... smug about anything else. I'm very humble, but I do feel. <laughs> could
0: could you help out Houston by just like sit, sitting on the gas for like a little bit, <laughs> just like fill her up and then rev the engine?
2: Well, I, well, I was gonna say, I was gonna say actually, um, wouldn't a smart policy move be to incentivize businesses? <laughs> either startups or new ventures in Houston that are not oil and gas, Uh that are solar, Mm -hmm.
0: electric. Oh, absolutely. And I think you're seeing efforts in that direction. You see the ION, you see the TMC3, or I think Mm -hmm. it has a new name now, in the medical center. You see this real investment in entrepreneurship. Uh, But I think you have this sort of big picture problem that the oil and gas industry is still pretty dominant. And if you're an engineer, if you're a smart person, uh, those companies are probably going to pay you a whole lot more than whatever competing tech venture could get. True. And so it just is really hard to get the labor you need to run some sort of alternative. And you also have this, this problem, the innovator's dilemma. You know, If you run a big company, why would you invest in transitioning to something that undercuts your already successful business model? Mm,
1: that's a good point. That's a good point. Shane, what about you? What is the overlooked story this week for you?
2: My overlooked story this week is that Representative Sheila Jackson Lee reintroduced the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act Mm -hmm. to add a Tyree Nichols duty to intervene provision. Um, And for those who don't know or need a refresher, uh, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act was introduced in the summer of 2020. And it's been passed in the House. It hasn't been able to be passed in the Senate. Uh, so it's been reintroduced and it's passed in the House again. And the, and in the Senate, it's, it's like a big question mark. Um, and the reason why I felt like this was underlooked, um, is because Sheila Jackson Lee is really, um, I, I see her as a, as a, as a Houston rep that really connects Houston with the rest of the country and the rest of the world. Um, I met her through my work on Syrian politics. Um, Tyree Nichols' murder was um, just a huge, not only was it outrageous and infuriating, but just the amount of grief that everybody was feeling Um, was immense. Uh, Mm -hmm. I know myself and a lot of people could not watch that video, uh, but just hearing the descriptions about it uh, was enough to make anyone feel sick. So uh, I thought it was really important that Sheila Jackson Lee introduced this uh, duty to intervene uh, provision because a big aspect of Tyree Nichols' murder is that there were EMT uh, professionals, a bunch of other crisis responder professionals who are around and who did not intervene. Um, And uh, during uh, President Biden's State of the Union address, um, Tyree Nichols' family was like a a special guest of President Biden and they were urging for this policing act to be passed. Um, Not super surprisingly, not surprisingly at all, no Republicans have supported the legislation.
0: I would say, at least not in the House, but in the Senate, you've seen Tim Scott really try to work across the aisle to to get something through with with uh, the Justice and Policing Act. Uh, and you know, there's a little hope that you might be able to pull together some parts that everyone agrees on. Everyone's hung up on the qualified immunity component where you can't sue uh, law enforcement officers for violating your civil rights. It's a really weird judge invented standard. Uh, But there are parts in there where I think if you look at local and state issues, uh, groups have come together in agreement, you know, having really straightforward use of force standards and investigations into use of force, improving data collection and transparency, and really just having strict licensure and decertification requirements. Like if you're a lawyer uh, or a doctor or a teacher and you violate the public trust, not even break the law, but it's like violate your professional ethics, uh, you get your license taken away and you can't do that job anymore. But with policing, there are so many barriers to that kind of accountability. Some states don't even have licensure that it just makes it impossible to say like, these officers are bad at their jobs and will suffer the consequences, and letting officers know that we want to hold them to a very high standard because it's an important job. Instead, we have this system where it seems like they're held to very low standards, where we let uh, just low case closure rates Uh, Go by. We let uh, interactions with community that build mistrust and disrespect become a norm. Like, I don't think anybody wants any of that. And it's time to start putting things in place at a federal level to say, like, we we think policing or it's time to put things in place at a federal level where we say policing is important and we're going to treat it like an important thing.
1: Mm hmm. Well said, Evan. Well said. Yeah, that was actually uh, she and my story that needed more attention was uh, the Tyree Nichols duty to intervene because I was shocked to learn that EMT was just like there. You know, I did not watch the video, but, you know, from reading because everyone would write about it and describe exactly what happened. And I was just it's something just it makes you physically ill. So I'm glad that this is something that we're putting out there for listeners to look into more. Okay, let's talk about something that's making us happy. I know this, been, this has been a Debbie Downer. <laughs> been, we've been like talking about so many sad things and things that are just like, ugh, make you ache. Evan, what is bringing you joy?
0: So what sparked joy in me this week uh, mm-hmm. is that the Chronicle of Philanthropy uh, released its list of the top 50 philanthropists of last year. And it was picked Ooh. up by the Associated Press and the Ooh. Houston Chronicle and everyone. And on the list are three Houstonians, or some of them are couples. So at number five are Laura and John Arnold, my bosses. Uh, and then a little further down the list, you have Rich and Nancy Kinder and Tillman Fertitta. And it's such a delight to see people in Houston giving back. And there are big projects here. Houston Landing, the new publication, the Land Bridge in Memorial Park, investments in the university in Houston. And what especially makes me smile is seeing this type of philanthropic activity in Houston in contrast to the lack of it mm-hmm. in Austin. <laughs> like Just uh, a few weeks ago, Larry Wright published this piece about, oh, Austin's changing and lamenting Austin, how all these like dozens of billionaires have moved there, but those billionaires are not necessarily giving back to Austin. I mean, prove me wrong if there's something going on that I don't know about, but it seems like the top of like the Austin philanthropy list is Michael Dell, and he's from Houston. And in fact, just a few weeks ago, the Houston Chronicle ran a story about this uh Austin couple who gave twenty two million dollars to the Houston Grand Opera because and it, it just like makes me smile that this is the sort of sense of giving back that Houston has always relied upon. Now it has, you know, upsides and downsides to have a system that works like this. Uh, but it certainly seems better than the alternative where, you know, you don't have social services that are robust because you live in Texas. But then you also don't have philanthropy.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. No, you're right. I love how much our city gives back to each other and to the city itself. Like you mentioned the land bridge. That's amazing. I mean, bigger than Central Park. Hell yeah, we'll take it. And that's because of Houstonians making it happen. And I love that.
0: Oh, yeah. Going all the way back to Ima Hogg uh, and her family giving the land Mm -hmm. to the city. Yeah, yeah.
2: I got to say, listeners can't see this, but I have smiled big smiles listening to what Evan was saying, especially <laughs> the part about <laughs> the little friendly Austin-Houston ri- rivalry, that yeah. rivalry that you um, colored that news with. Uh, mm-hmm. just really made me smile this Friday. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Sham, what's bringing you joy?
2: Dina, what brought me joy this week was seeing a tweet from CrowdSource Rescue which is a Houston, what I consider a Houston civil society organization. Uh, they were started during Hurricane Harvey, and it's it was neighbors helping neighbors and using a really smart and sophisticated suite of technology to connect people in a really smart way. Um, and I saw a tweet from them that said that they wanted to send a team into northwest Syria um and uh well to be honest i didn't see it but someone who knows me saw it and sent me an email and said you really need to look at this and um i was telling someone recently like wow i i feel like i've had the room to breathe um as the bombing in syria has kind of gotten to a it's it used to be very high and Basically, that um, people could feel the differences in stress. So when the earthquake struck in along the Syrian-Turkish border, crisis response became on top of everybody's mind.
1: Right, and we saw it in Houston too, where people were starting to like say, "Hey, like, hey, do you have anything you want to donate? Any winter clothing, winter blankets?" And that really showed even more so like how Houstonians come together even for something that doesn't necessarily directly affect them but it's still their way of helping a community in need.
2: So what was really hard is that I know a lot of people on the Turkish side and the Syrian side and just seeing my feeds just be like basically crisis updates and death notices and what was really hard Um, and I would want to do more research on this, but just hearing from people that actually money was more important than material donations. Um, and just thinking through like crisis response methodology, best practices, and really wishing I had a team. And so seeing that, seeing that the Houston, like equivalent of, you know, natural disaster crisis response wanted to extend solidarity really brought me a lot of joy.
1: Yeah, definitely brought me joy too. Mine, I have to say, is the farmer's market that's happening every other Wednesday downtown now. And it'll be on site of the Smith Street Farmer's Market at Allen Center on the first and third Wednesdays of the month. And this is all like according to the Brookfield Properties. I think that's amazing that they're trying to get this incentive granted to make people work from an office, but they're making locally sourced produce and baked goods and all the amazing things you can get from a farmer's market accessible to people who work downtown. Because if you work downtown, but you live like in Katy and a farmer's market happens way too far from you, this is like a great way of still getting those produce and getting locally sourced items what at supporting those small businesses and also getting something that's, you know, organic. And that brought me so much joy that it's making it accessible.
2: I'll have to check it out.
1: Yeah. Well, Evan, Shiam, this has been great. Thank you so much. I've learned so much from you both.
2: Thanks, Dina.
0: Oh, my pleasure. Anytime.
1: That's all I got for y'all today on CityCast Houston. The team who makes this show day in and out is me, lead producer. Producers A.K.L. Moatman and Carleon Jones. Our newsletter writer is Brooke Lewis, and our music is by All the Kimonos. Y'all, I know I say this a lot, but it's super important. If you like our show, please give us a comment and a high rating. And as always, tell your friends about us. We're off for President's Day on Monday, but we'll have a must-listen-to episode fresh for your ears on Tuesday.
2: Bye! Good morning, Dina. It's so great to be here with y'all. Oh wait, also good morning, Evan. Oh my God, can we start again? (laughs) Sorry, y'all.